Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Christian Henderson. Christian is Assistant Professor of Middle East Politics at Leiden University. Christian's a scholar of political economy and development, focusing on the Middle East with a particular focus on the Arab region and Gulf investment in the states of North Africa and the Levant. He's done some fascinating work both in his current career as an academic, but also in a in a former life as a journalist. He's doing some really wonderful work on food security and insecurity, and I'm really looking forward to talking with him today. So, Christian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simon. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. So, Christian, you have a, a slightly different path to um, to getting to where you are today in in Leiden than than perhaps others, given that you went via journalism. But I wonder if I can start just by asking you what what piqued your interest in in the Middle East, or was it more that you were interested in journalism and then found your way into the Middle East via that? Well, I think it was the former, uh, really, in the sense that I first developed some interest in the Middle East and. Then I uh, was interested in pursuing my interest in the Middle East through journalism. Uh, so my, what first kind of sparked my interest, I think, was a, a period of time that I spent in Morocco during my university, university degree, uh, in which I was volunteering for an uh, NGO that worked in agriculture and uh, veterinary services in Morocco. Um, and I spent around three months in Morocco in 1997. And it just became a, uh, from, from, from that experience, uh, from that uh, time, I just developed a, 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 an interest in, in the whole region, really. Sure. So I have to ask then, what was, what was it you were studying? At this time. Uh, I did a BA in Development Studies right. at Middlesex University. Okay. Um, so on the basis of part of that degree involved a, a an option to spend time uh, volunteering or working or getting some kind of work experience with uh, some sort of organization uh, anywhere in the world. And I really by chance chose Morocco. Okay. Okay. So... Um that, that's that's quite interesting. That in in another way, you could easily have gone down Latin American route or or, or other paths. Yes, uh, possibly, but I think um, you know the proximity of places like Morocco to Europe uh, makes that uh, sure. you know it makes a visit uh, makes it sort of uh, having the chance to visit these countries quite uh, simple, really yeah. straightforward. Yeah, yeah, got you. So when you were in Morocco, there were particular things that spoke to you, that resonated, that, that piqued your, your intellectual curiosity then? Yeah, I, I, there was one actual, actually, uh, experience or uh, one thing that I think, I think I became particularly interested in. Um, uh, and that was, uh, I actually spent time with a family uh, in a small city about an hour from Rabat called Chemiset. Right. Provincial town, really. I wouldn't even say it was a city. Uh, so I spent that, about two months with a family there, which was quite an interesting experience. And um, they had uh, satellite television. So I think it was probably during the period um, in which, 
you know, satellite TV uh, became accessible for many people um, in uh, the Arab region. And I remember watching footage of um, events in Palestine, I think, and just becoming, uh, and, and I think this was on Al Jazeera, I think, and so the type of coverage that was taking place on Arab TV was very different to the type of coverage that you would get in the West, and I think it really just kind of opened my eyes to things that were taking place elsewhere in the region. Right. Uh, and on the basis of, of that experience, uh, when I finished my degree, I went to Ramallah uh, and spent uh, a total of six months actually in Ramallah, and that was in 1998. So I think that was a kind of, from Morocco I went to, to spend time in Ramallah, and that was a, quite a, uh, a formative experience in some ways um, for various reasons. Hmm. So, tell us about those reasons then, if if you you can. I mean, I'd be curious to to hear your your thoughts on the ways in which which events were being covered differently by by Western or English language media and Arab media. But perhaps that might be uh, might be asking you to recall a little bit too much going back that many years. I but think I think it was just. Um you know, uh, depicted in a more uh, graphic manner, actually. Um, right, okay. And a, a more, much more sympathetic manner. So it was it was much... Um, so I kind of became quite kind of... Uh, I mean, this was in 1997, so it's more than 20 years ago. But I remember be, being just quite kind of shocked and quite kind of, um, uh, um, you know, su- sort of surprised by some of the footage that you could see um, mm. Anyway, you know, it was it was it was quite kind of um, it was very sympathetic coverage of the situation, um, and then when I got to uh, 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 Ramallah, uh, I mean, I think it's very difficult not to kind of have some experience of uh, what was taking place on the ground there, and not to be. Um, very moved by the injustice of the situation and the um, the unfairness, I suppose, of, of the situation that uh, uh, you know uh, uh, the Palestinians find themselves in. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's something I, I would agree with. Um, pretty pretty devastating, not just in Ramallah, of course, but but across the the West Bank and Gaza. Um, how long were you there for? How long were you in Ramallah for? I was there for six months. Right. Um, and actually, I also had the experience um, of going to Iraq during that time. Oh, wow. Which okay. was quite a, yeah, which was quite a, well, it was a very um, interesting experience. <laughs> I can so imagine. Was an organization um, in the U.S. that was uh, very active against sanctions. Uh, and the, you know, Iraq was essentially being devastated, really, in some ways, by uh, the very uh, strict sanctions that had been opposed, imposed on the country. Mm. And they were protesting against these sanctions by, um, in various ways. And they, and I can't really remember how this uh, opportunity became open to me, um, but I was asked if I would like to go on a kind of fact-finding trip that they had organized to Iraq. So I think that took place in October or November of of. 1998, and I'd arrived in Palestine in, July, in June, I think. 
Um, and we, so I traveled over to Oman, and then from Oman we traveled by road into to, to, to Baghdad. And that was also a very, um, uh, you know, eye-opening, shocking experience in the sense that it was, I mean, I think we were, to a certain extent, we were kind of, you know, our minders in Iraq at the time were kind of quite keen on presenting a very uh, um, specific picture to us. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it was very apparent that the, that the society was suffering quite uh, um, uh, quite severely as a result of these sanctions. Yeah. So this 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 whole experience of kind of uh, you know, and I had never really been that politicized before. I'd never really been that uh, aware of uh, what was taking place in the world before that experience. Um, but it really opened my eyes, and it really. Um, created a motivation for me to learn and study and read more about the history of this region generally. Right. And did that, did that push you to go into, into journalism as well? Or was that just a, a byproduct of becoming more, um, more curious and wanting to do something with that, that curiosity? Um, I think I did it. Well, so when, so after I went back to the UK, um, I, after that experience, I, um, I enrolled for a master's in Middle East Studies at Edinburgh University. Uh, so I started that in the year 2000, and then I, um, that was a year-long course. And then I suppose I was beginning to wonder about what kind of job I could do uh, uh, during that master's. And journalism seemed like a kind of interesting thing to do, really. Um, so... I don't. I, I. I don't think I went into journalism from the perspective of wanting to be a journalist. Ultimately, I think <laughs> right. I went into journalism uh, from the perspective of thinking it would be an interesting job and give me the opportunity to learn more and inquire more and uh, you know satisfy curiosity. I think I like that as a reason for going into something. It's it's sort of why I I fell by accident into academia, but. I like that as a reason for going into journalism rather than a, as an end in itself. That's, that's a, a good way of putting it. So, I mean, I think that uh, in retrospect, I think that uh, you know, I think that I think I, I think I didn't necessarily have any professional training in journalism, right. which I think I would have benefited from. And I do think that um, I look at the kind of younger generation of people who went. Uh, who've established themselves as foreign correspondents now. And it, it, I think there has been a professionalization of journalism over the last 20 years or so. I yeah. Many of the, these people seem to be very, um, you know, uh, able in terms of managing different forms of technology, for example. And I think that's probably something that's quite beneficial. But yes, you're right. It's certainly a, 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 it's a good reason to do something, ultimately, because you're interested in it. Yeah, exactly. So... I think, Christian, the first time that I encountered you and and your name, obviously not 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 personally, was was back in two thousand and six. Reading some of the stuff that you were doing on um, on on events in Lebanon. Mm. So um, it's 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 really good to actually be chatting with you some fifteen years after that. Goodness. Uh, yeah. So just just tell us a little bit about about that time if you will please obviously it's it's a, a hugely significant moment um, a hugely devastating uh, moment for for many people in the south of Beirut um, but what was it like covering that 
Um, it was surreal um, in the sense that I was actually living in uh, Beirut at this time. I, I, so after I finished my my masters, I went to Lebanon, and quite by chance that I was offered a job uh, as a editor for the Daily Star. Right. Uh, um, uh, the Lebanese Daily Star, mm-hmm. not the British one. Um, <laughs> I've made and, that mistake in the past. <laughs> and that was a great uh, opportunity. I mean, you know, I was editing. I didn't really get the, as much chance to do reporting, uh, but I was editing. And actually, uh, that developing a skill as an editor is something that is always, uh, um, you know, is, 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 always, is always worthwhile because you can always use editing skills and whatever task you're doing and that's something that I apply in academia uh, anyway uh, I spent some years um, about three years in Beirut and then I went to work actually for Al Jazeera in Qatar mm-hmm. uh, in 2004 um, and then I went back to Lebanon and tried to establish myself as a freelance reporter um, and then the war happened in 2006 and it was a, it was a surreal experience because I, I mean Lebanon I'd spent you know much of my twenties in, in Beirut and uh, I considered it as a um, as home in some ways uh, and then this uh, conflict really was completely you know none of us predicted it was going to take place yeah uh, none, it was completely unpredictable it took us by surprise it certainly took me by surprise. And I just remember sitting on a bal- on the balcony of, of the flat that I lived and hearing shouting and fireworks and actually, I think, celebratory gunfire. And I kind of was wondering what's going on. And I remember switching on the TV and it was announced that they had, uh, Hezbollah had um, uh, carried out this operation in, on, on the, the border with Israel. Um, Do you remember your immediate emotion to that? And that that's uh, quite a significant thing. It was thing. quite heavy. It was quite. Um, well, I think it was a mixture of emotions, really, um, because it think events moved very quickly, if mm, I remember rightly. Yeah. After that, I think Israel, uh, the Israeli um, air force, started bombing. Uh, bombing parts of Lebanon almost on the same day, if I'm not mistaken, you know that there was there was very little. Um, uh, it happened very it happened very quickly, so that happened, and I I, I I can't really remember what I thought. I would think it was just a mixture of emotions, but it was obvious from that point that something very serious was going to happen. Yeah, uh, and then it. Um, became, you know, then and then I remember. Uh, I think when we we knew that something serious, it, you knew, we knew that this was going to become quite serious because um, the Israeli air force bombed Zahrani, I think, which is a power station somewhere south of Saida, and that was a uh, within the kind of rules of the game of you know previous conflicts, bombing north of the blue line was a uh, considered to be a um, you know uh, a sort of a, a quite a clear message basically mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken that's how we, we I, I and other people analyzed it and then um, they bombed the 
the uh, airport in Beirut. They closed the airport, and then from then on, it was just it was essentially you know uh, a war. Um, it, and I was reporting on it, and it was quite intense. Uh, it was quite uh, emotional. There were things that happened that were very, um, you know, I didn't necessarily come into contact with any any kind of the aftermath of any um, uh, violence. I mean, I, I wasn't someone who went down to the south and uh, reported on, you know, the bombing of civilian uh, homes and the deaths of civilians, and I'm quite glad about that, actually. Yeah, I, sure. Because some of my colleagues, um, you know, came across things that were quite... Um, uh, horrific, really, for example, the killing of children. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was also freelance and I didn't have the resources to be able to do something like that. I didn't have a car. I didn't have, um, you know, you, you, to go safely or at least relatively safely into a war zone, I think you have to be quite well resourced. Yeah. And I so. didn't have, I made the decision to stay in Beirut, which I think was probably wise. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I think it just uh, is covering a war is quite a intense um, experience, and it was quite exhausting, quite exhilarating at times. Um, quite, but at the but, but by the end of the, it was a month. It went on for a month. Um, I think I lost about ten kilos. <laughs> uh, I think I was smoking quite a lot, yeah. and it, it's just not a very healthy. Yeah, for anyone. I mean, least of all for you know people who can who have no option of escaping. Um, and I think that experience was you know very formative in some ways, but I think it also made me realise that actually I didn't really want to be a reporter. Right. Um, and I was actually offered a job, or well, hint, it was a hint of an offer of a job in uh, with AFP in Baghdad, I think. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well. You know that would have kind of uh, furthered my kind of uh, career as a as a reporter and a reporter in conflict zones, but I think I decided not to. Um, but it was a very interesting experience. It was a very, um, it, and I think it really um, provided some insight into just how horrific and unpleasant and. Uh, Terrible; these kind of situations can be ultimately. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I must say that journalism's loss is uh, is the academy's gain. So, if we can maybe skip <laughs> uh, skip forward a decade or so, you you ended up doing a, a PhD, and then you um, you you got this this post at wonderful Leiden University, and you're not mm. focusing so much on on. Um, on conflict or coverage of conflict, as, as some might have thought, but political ecology and political economy and food. So, where yeah. where did this come from then? Is this is this going back to your your undergraduate studies? Um, where, where's the interest come from? Um, so, I think I've always had an interest in the environment, um, and I've always had an interest in um, nature, I suppose, and. Uh, I think as I started to do my, as I worked on my PhD, um, the PhD really initiated started as a kind of political, as a uh, project that was going to engage with critical political economy. 
but as I worked through my PhD, it, it I didn't really realize this at the time, but it became more of a project, I think, that in some ways was relevant to the field of political ecology. And, when I, and I, by the time I actually finished my PhD, I realized this. And then um, I sort of realized, actually, that I could combine two interests here. I could combine an interest in the Middle East, and I could combine an interest <laughs> in the environment. Sure. And, um, that, you know, the environment is a, it's a, it's a, I think it's a worthy thing to study. Um, it's Certainly. something that is very relevant and very important and is understudied ultimately mm. um, so uh, so basically I've tried to my publications are more, I've tried to speak more and more to um, uh, a kind of political ecology dimension and you know obviously my, my work is on it's partly on agrarian political economy, so you know the, the connection between that and political ecology is, is, is very obvious. Um, and then when I was lucky enough to be offered a permanent position at Leiden, I took on I, I, I started two elective courses here. Uh, one is on the political ecology of the Middle East and North Africa, and the other is on um, the environment and the global political economy. So the that so as a result of this interest, both in terms of research and in terms of teaching, I've developed this kind of uh, well interdisciplinary uh, focus. So it's not that easily easy to define. To define, <laughs> yeah. But it involves different elements that are kind of combined, I suppose, which which I think is quite interesting. Um, yeah, I, so I that, would agree. Essentially. How how my, how how I'd explain my my uh, development as a as a academic. Well, it strikes me that it's it's intersectional as well as interdisciplinary. That that what you're doing speaks not only to um, to development studies, to um, study of the environment, but also clearly has a, a a very strong political dimension. There's a very clear um, intersectional aspect to, to what it is that you're doing yeah yeah and I think uh, yeah I mean I, I think it speaks to uh, several different issues as, as you say and um, I've, I've always increasingly I kind of find the idea of being bound by a discipline to be quite um, uh, yeah I, I it's not a very attractive idea really um, uh, and it, I think it creates some difficulties um, as a scholar because it takes a while to work out what, what it exactly it is you're trying to do and what exactly, what kind of debate or field you're trying to intervene on. But then when you figure that out, it actually is a asset in some ways. Yeah, embracing the, um, the absence of disciplinary chains, if you will. Yeah. Embracing intellectual yeah. freedoms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But that's one of the things that and, I really... Uh, 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 Sorry, Christine, go on. No, you go on. Uh, I was just going to say, it's one of the things that I really enjoy when reading reading your work and your um, your recent articles, this this sense that I could be reading something in a, in a development studies journal or political economy journal, but it's it's sort of speaking to, to lots of different debates in a, in a very provocative way, which... Is, is one of the things that I really enjoy when, when reading um, reading academic work, that 
it poses different types of questions that could push in different directions, which of course comes with its own types of challenges when navigating the treacherous terrain of the review process. But but that's one of the things that I really, really appreciate about your work, that it's it's provocative. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think when it comes to the environment um, and the, our current uh, relationship with the environment, then we, you kind of need to be provocative, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, because, you know, the, the, the things, aren't, things aren't going well, let's put it like that. So if it's not provocative, then, well, it has to be provocative, in my opinion. Um, I don't see the point in, in it not being provocative. Yeah, completely agree. So on the subject of, um, of being provocative, you have what sounds to be an incredibly provocative new book that you are close to completion. So so can you tell us a little bit about that then, please, Christian? Yeah, so um, the book is uh, built on the PhD, and essentially it examines the position of the Gulf states within the global political economy. And it, uh, you could say that the Gulf states are often understood on the basis of their uh, export of commodities, primarily, you know, obviously oil and gas. That tends to be the way in which the Gulf is understood. But what I'm interested in doing is exploring the uh, uh, Gulf economies through their import of commodities, and in this case, food. Mm -hmm. And on the basis of that, um, I think we can learn quite a lot about the Gulf we can learn about the fact that it should really be seen as a, uh, in some ways, as a kind of significant emerging economy if we were to take the Gulf states uh, combined. And um, that can be um, illustrated through the substantial imp import of food commodities, which is, um, and there's another article that I have um, that's about to come out that will we'll m mention this, which if you were to look at the BRICS and MINTS economies, uh, you can see that the Gulf is only second to China in terms of its food imports. So That's the Gulf collectively as a GCC region, just to clarify. Yeah, the GCC. Yeah. So that's, um, you know, uh, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, uh, Qatar and Oman, not, not certainly excluding Yemen. And so the... In that sense, we can say that that says a lot about a number of different issues. But one example, one one debate that that is relevant to is this question of a multipolarity within the global economy. Mm -hmm. um, in the sense that how is economic power becoming distributed across the global political economy? Uh, and what does that say about political power? And the Gulf states have a, in some ways, they embody the type of contradiction that is taking place, which is that uh, the, the block of the GCC states in some ways represent continuity. In some ways they kind of enforce, reinforce uh, uh, northern hegemony. But in some ways they also represent a, a shift in economic power. So that would be one debate on which this book uh, intervenes on. It also intervenes on the ways in which we could understand uh, the role of flows of material commodities within the global economy, in the sense that 
if we were to look at the Gulf states, there is a puzzle there, which is that how did these countries develop uh, and to the point that they've developed in the absence of any kind of significant or, or, or a very small agroecological uh, base? The, you know, and I mean by that the Gulf states are very quite arid countries. Mm -hmm. Their their ability to um, produce agriculturally is 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 limited. Um, not to say that there is a long history of agricultural production, but within the Gulf state there is, but it's it's quite limited. Uh, uh, it, it's quite limited by the, the sort of environmental conditions of the of the region. So. On that basis, we can see that these imp imports, which have been sourced either through uh, direct contracts on the open market, but also through direct land acquisitions, um, has has enabled the Gulf states to, uh, you know, develop to a certain extent. That's where that's how these economies have grown. It's fascinating. Um, so that is at the expense, in some ways, of the producer of producer countries, mm -hmm. and the the example that I focus on. Um, is Egypt and also other countries in the Nile Basin. And so I would define this as a kind of um, process of ecologically unequal exchange. So the Gulf countries have developed and grown um, because they import food from countries such as Egypt. And Egypt has you know, struggles with rising levels of food insecurity, uh, problems in terms of access to land for farmers, uh, um, so that relationship, that unequal exchange, I think is something that will become more significant within the global economy uh, in coming years. Uh, and I think it's a kind of underexplored dimension of international relations, really, in the sense that, um, you know, the, the significance of material flows is sometimes not really thought about in terms of, in the context of international relations. So we tend to, to see international relations as motivated by security, by politics, uh, by identity. But we don't necessarily, there isn't that much space given to the significance of ecological resources. And I think that will be a most likely a, a more significant uh, factor in the coming years. Yeah, well, the, the, the obvious thing, of course, is the, the recent incident in the Suez Canal, which kind of reinforces your point about fragility, but also the, the lack of, of attention prior to that. The lack of what, sorry? The lack of attention paid to um, yeah. to the fragility and precarious nature of these global supply chains. Well, exactly. I mean, I think as, uh, you know, the last few years, we've there is a kind of culture of, um, there is a, you know, we, be we begin to assume that commodities are delivered to us from, we don't necessarily think about commodity chains or logistics or any of these uh, processes that deliver commodities to us. Um, and I say that us in the global north, because we are the biggest consumers globally, um, um, and that there is a kind of, well, uh, you know, we don't think about geopolitics. We don't necessarily think about there is a tendency to ignore these features, geographies. Mm. Um, and the Suez Canal incident, I think, was quite a blatant reminder of the fact that <laughs> actually uh, geography is important. You know, that if someone gets their ship stuck in, a, in the Suez Canal, um, 
then it's all about geography. It's all about uh, geopolitics and um, that, 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 those types of issues. Exactly, yeah. A, a very pertinent and uh, obvious reminder of this. Christian, it's been absolutely fabulous talking with you. I'm really looking forward to, to reading the book and, the, um, and, and the, the article that you mentioned. Where should we be looking out for that? Yeah, that, so that will be coming out. Um, that's accepted for publication in the Journal of Peasant Studies. Right. It should be coming out, I, I assume, um, very soon. Well, we will um, be, be very eager to keep an eye out for that. And, uh, and obviously with the, the book as well, it's very exciting times. But it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, Christian. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've learned a great deal, as I always do. There's so much to think about. So thank you for, um, for your provocations, both in your work and in this conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Simon. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you, Christian. A huge thank you to Christian for his time just now. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with him about his work and about his, his view of how we engage with the world around us as, as academics. You can find Christian on Twitter at CJV Henderson. That's at CJV Henderson. So do give him a follow and please also uh, like, subscribe, share all of the, the stuff that you come across from, uh, from Project Separd. It's very helpful to us. I'm not entirely sure how or why, but it is, so I'm told. Something to do with algorithms, I'm sure. But anyway, it's all very much appreciated, as is you listening. So, as always, thank you so much. Until next time.